Today's reading is Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. It can be found on page 892 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Okay. I'm going to ask for God's blessing and God's uh, activity as we listen to this scripture passage. So um, I invite you to bow your heads as we open in prayer. And my microphone's a little loud, so maybe we could bring that down a little bit. Our gracious God, as we enter into this room and as we sit in these chairs, the truth is we come from all different kinds of life circumstances. And so as we sit here, um, we take just a moment to, um, to just listen, in a sense, listen to our life. In, a, in, in just a moment of maybe 20, 30 seconds of silence here, we're all just going to consider what is it that we walk into this room carrying? What are we carrying? What is our life situation? We ponder that now with just a few seconds of silence. God, whatever it is that came to mind, whatever it is that is in our life, um, the truth is that we don't find ourselves to be perfect. In fact, quite often we have a lot of troubling stuff. People around us bring trouble on us, but then the truth is also we have trouble bubbling up from within. So we don't find our hands to be clean at the end of the day. It's not just others, it's also us. And so we're more of a mess than we care to admit. And the truth is, your story of Scripture tells us over and over that you love us. And so even though we're a mess, you have entered into our world to bring love to broken, failed, imperfect lives. And so that is grace, and we long for it. We thirst for it. We want it to be true um, but it's, it's almost so unbelievable that we, we would rather earn our way towards you. So help us today, help us now, even through this message, to know something more about your grace and to perhaps find that it transforms if we could just hear it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, 
Um, this, uh, this passage talks about laws and rules and obedience. And the, we have a question of the week. You can fill that out on the, uh, on the tear-off card. You can drop it in a basket later. That's fun because it allows us to talk about your answers next week. So um, the tear-off card, I hadn't mentioned that, but that's something you can use to get to in touch with us, but you could also just give an answer to the question of the week. And, and last week's question went like this, so I have your answers. What laws would you get rid of? And someone said, laws punishing the survival acts of homeless people, sleeping, sitting, being in public places. Someone else said, strict laws that make becoming a citizen so difficult. Someone else said the law of children should be seen and not heard. Abolish that law. Get rid of it. Someone said the laws of physics. Someone said speed limits in the fast lane. That should be abolished. Get rid of it. And then someone else said most. What laws should we get rid of? Most laws. And it's that answer, I think, more than any that hits on to something that is very present in our culture. It's all around us, a sort of antinomianism. And you all know exactly what that means. Um, uh, antinomianism, sort of the opposite of legalism. You know, kind of, let's take off the shackles. Let's be free. Let's live freely and liberally however we want. Antinomianism. And in many ways, that's a part of our culture, that's a part of what we're used to, that's all around us, and it's probably touched your life in many ways, so that you come, in a sense, what we would love Jesus to be like, and what we would picture Jesus being like, and we think, what if Jesus showed up today and walked up to me, what we want him to say is, dude, relax, try one of, try one of my brownies, come on, man, chill, Right? That's the Jesus we would want. And to our great horror, we read the words coming out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is beginning, and it's not going well for our picture of Jesus. Quite frankly, Matthew 5 is a bummer because Jesus seems to be a law freak. This is not... The Sermon on the Mount really is not a message for your average college partier and your 420 warrior. This is not the audience that's kind of expected for this passage. It's, meant, it's not meant to be what is going to be transformative for that kind of person. It's a message, actually. The whole thing, the whole Matthew 5, 6, 7 is a message for the religious crowd. And so we read him saying, and you can kind of imagine someone who's really excited about um, duty and about everyone pulling their weight and about responsibility, and you hear Jesus' word, you imagine that kind of person listening to this. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. Oh, man, Jesus is intense. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will be by any means disappear from the law. In fact, that little stroke of pen number, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, not one jot or tittle 
A lovely old English expression. That's, that's from this passage. That's basically exactly where it oriented from. Not one jot or tittle shall pass away from the law. Jesus is intense. And as you look at the way he phrases it, even that, he's chosen these big global sweeping words that if you're in a relationship with a roommate or a spouse, you're not supposed to use these words in an argument. You know, like, like every and all and no one, you know, no one likes you, and you always say that, and you never love me. You know, these kind of unfair global things that we sweep. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Every, the least, the greatest, no one ever, anything. It's, it's, this is, Jesus seems to be just waving his hand around like I just was. Is this what Jesus is doing in this passage. So you can imagine the kind of person that is a religious person, that is that wants us to kind of raise the bar and dial things up because everything's gotten too lax. And, you know, it's always the 80% of the work being done by 20% of the people. And so, you know, Jesus here is kind of good, right? He's hardcore. And it makes me feel like we're going to make Jerusalem great again. Right? And someone, someone reading the Sermon on the Mount might come away saying, depending on where they're at in life, this kind of, you know, duty-bound person, um, let's follow this Sermon on the... This is good stuff. Let's follow this perfectly. Thank you, Mabel. Comment card. You too can fill one of those out. But what I, what I was saying is that it's like this... You could walk away from this Sermon on the Mount and go, yes, yes, Jesus. In fact, we're going to cut this out and we're going to type it up and we're, it's going to be what we do. We're going to live this perfectly or die trying. And the actual rude awakening of this is that you will die trying. And I think Jesus is giving us a rude awakening on purpose. See, we see what he says about the Pharisees. You, you have to exceed, your righteousness has to exceed the fair, that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Did you see that part? And we know, I mean, we can, that's a phrase that we can use to understand what is Jesus getting at here because Jesus has interacted over and over and over again in the Gospels with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We know what he thinks about them. We know his critique of them. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the cream of the crop of religious achievement. And yet, what Jesus points out over and over again is what they've been able to achieve and the heights they've been able to attain in the culture related to the law has only come through drastically downsizing the law's impact on our life. They've had to, they've had to squeeze it down. Let me just give you a couple of great Pharisee quotes from people who are kind of summarizing what Jesus says about what they're doing wrong. Um, the first one is John Stott, a, a theologian, New Testament scholar. He says, what the scribes and Pharisees are doing in order to make obedience more readily attainable was to restrict the commandments and extend the permissions of the law. They made the law's demand less demanding and the law's permissions more, permission, more permissive. And what Jesus did was to reverse both tendencies. Another, uh, from a different era, John Calvin, going much farther back, he put, he put it very simply in a, in a sort of insult-laden uh, quote about the Pharisees. He says that what they did is by confining the law of God to outward duties only, 
They trained their disciples like apes in hypocrisy. It doesn't really, it's not a good zinger in today's world for some reason, but I think back then it killed. <laughs> trained them in hypocrisy. That's what John Calvin said. And Jesus' own critique, his, one of the ways he puts, gives us most colorful language is when he says that what the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws are doing is they have, are, have turned themselves into whitewashed tombs. So there's death inside, but externally and on the outside, they're scrubbed diligently clean. And so it really what's going on with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is that they've minimized law-keeping to the most outward Things and nothing is, seems to be penetrating into their character, into their hearts, into their minds, into their souls. And so, what's happening here is Jesus is um, basically taking the most fastidious rule keepers of his day and calling them whitewashed tombs and saying, you, you've got to at least be better than them. <laughs> you know, the, the greatest duty, responsibility teachers of his day. Oh, you for sure have to be better than them. It's a pretty impossible high standard. And so as we'll see, as you get into the Sermon on the Mount, a great idea would be just to, to read through it one of these days coming up, to familiarize yourself with the, how the whole thing feels together. What he's doing is he's eventually exasperating the most aggressive, diligent religious student is going to be led, led to just throw up their hands with all these teachings. He's going to talk about murder, but he's going to say, hey, you've heard it said don't murder, but what I say, you can't even be angry. You've heard it said adultery, don't commit adultery. I say, you can't even have lust in your heart. You've heard it said, you know, don't worry about a few things. I'm going to say, don't worry about a single thing. And he just keeps ratcheting it up. It almost seems like Jesus is out for a cruel joke of religious perfectionism. Which actually, if you're starting to realize that, perhaps right even as you get to the end of chapter 5 might be a good point to be feeling that way when he's talking about love your enemies. Because it's right at that point where he drops this bomb. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He has constructed, it seems, an ironclad case with an airtight seal around salvation to the extent where you wonder if anyone is ever going to even be let in. And what I would say is that that should sit a little bit, that should sit with you a little bit wrong. You should, if you have been around City Life Church, if you've been studying the Bible, if you've been led to be a Christian, to understand the Christian faith, you should have some alarm bells going off with these four verses of the Bible and with the whole Sermon on the Mount. You should be going, hmm, that's, mm, what about grace? Jesus, I've learned to see Jesus through this grace lens. So what about that? And what I would say is that Jesus is actually trying to speed up the process for all of us to get to grace. He knows that eventually if we devout our life to God's ways, and if we take on the project of obeying the Sermon on the Mount and all the other things in Scripture that we think we should follow, that we'll actually get more and more miserable trying to carry the burden. 
It's almost as if through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants to put that whole burden on your shoulders right now so that you can see right away you can't carry it. And that's almost an act of grace Jesus is working through this sermon. Um, Martin Luther, the young monk, Martin Luther, back in the day of the, the 16th century, he was, he was just miserable. He was, he was pouring over Scripture, reading through it. He was teaching Scripture, but he was unsatisfied. He was agitated inside. He was unhappy because as he dissected Scripture, it just seemed to reveal more and more and more to him about how imperfect his devotion was, even as an incredibly fastidious monk. He, was, he would more and more see the ways that he actually couldn't be satisfied with his own righteousness before God. And then finally, finally, in, as he is doing his, in that same book of the Bible, he's reading through, reading through, and he came across Romans, and he's studying this phrase, the righteousness of God. And as he studies it, finally, somehow, the light bulb comes off in his head. And the way he puts it is, all of Scripture basically flipped. All of Scripture looked different after this moment. When he realized grace, or what we talk about as the gospel, he realized that what Romans was saying was that that righteousness of God was given to us as a gift. We actually can't create it. And it's, it's like an alien righteousness or a passive right, righteousness. You don't ever get to take credit for it. And it's a gift. Well, he, Martin Luther got to that amazing, explosive point where it's almost like woo, this big whoosh of the dam breaking and the, the pressure just being relieved in his whole life and how he looked at himself and how he was pursuing God. Jesus, I would say, in the Sermon on the Mount, wants religious people to get there, to get to that point. He's so gracious that he wants to spare us the years of legalistic agony and so he holds up the law to us like a mirror, you know, for us. He's hoping you'll be able to accurately see yourself if you see enough of this. And that's literally an interesting point. That's literally why some churches and traditions have, in their architecture, how they've built their buildings, there's the, the Ten Commandments are visible so that as you come forward to receive God's grace at communion, you'll appropriately see how you fall short and how impossible it is that you'll have the right spirit and heart as you come forward, not because you deserve something, but because you're desperate and you'll fall to your knees and put out your hands to receive God's grace. You know, you might walk, you might not, not see that though, right? If you kind of don't get the gospel, you might walk in and go, oh, what a terrible church and their extremism about rules and the Ten Commandments. And so I don't think Jesus is trying to Give us a pep talk and inspire us on to a few extra good works with this Sermon on the Mount. I think, in fact, he's trying to, as a lot of people I read this week would use words like crush. Like, this crushes me. You know, I become desperate when I read this. And one, one writer and pastor, um, Kevin DeYoung, he wrote, The law doesn't inspire me to be a better me or find the good within me. The law beats me down and shows me how miserable I am. There's this place, um, talking about seeing how miserable you are, there's this, this show, and probably a lot of you have seen it, I just started watching some of the episodes with my son, The Good Place. I don't know if you've seen this show, but the premise is there's these four people who have died, and they found out that you either go to the good place or you go to the bad place, and that it's all a system of points. 
And in one of the episodes, Eleanor, um, who's the central character, she's trying to get her points up. And so, you know, she's kind of this horrible person. She's lived a horrible, you know, she's been, had a really terrible attitude, been really mean to people. But she's trying to right the wrongs and get her points up. She's doing all these things, but the points aren't registering, and she has this aha moment where she says, it's beautiful, because it's exactly what um, this, this passage is all about. She, she kind of has this aha moment, and she says, oh, I'm not getting the points for doing these, because I'm actually not being a good person. I'm just doing these to get the points. <laughs> and she spots her own selfishness in her doing good. In many ways, that's the depths of how even when we're at our best, even when we're following as fastidious as we can, we'll realize that even our righteousness is being done for selfish reasons. And Tim Keller has this great quote in this, um, in this writing, that he, he, this article he writes called The Centrality of the Gospel. He says, A Christian comes to say, though I have often failed to obey the moral law, the deeper problem is why I was trying to obey it. Even my efforts to obey it has been just a way of seeking to be my own savior. In, the, in that mindset, even if I obey or ask forgiveness, I'm really in, re- resisting the gospel and setting myself up as savior. So he says, to get the gospel is to turn from self-justification and rely on Jesus' record for a relationship with God. And then he kind of summarizes the these three different categories of people. He says the irreligious people don't repent at all. The religious people only repent of sins. But the Christian also repent of their righteousness. It seems if Jesus could have his way, if Psalm, or if not Psalm, but if um, the Sermon on the Mount has anything to say about it, Jesus, Jesus would want to fast forward to that time in our life when we finally reach the end of our rope, because he'll be there waiting. As one uh, other writer named Paul Zoll talks about the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Christianity is the only religion that says you have to give up in the face of the demand. And you have to lay the demand on another. Christianity starts with the conviction, I cannot solve the guilt problem. And so it seems Jesus wants us to reach a point of spiritual desperation because he meets us in that moment. He meets us. And that's not completely absent from the Sermon on the Mount either. I think it's a, I think, I think it's a little bit tricky what Jesus does, but he says a few, he, gives, he drops a few clues in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. In other weeks, we might get to explore some other ones, but... The ones I wanted to look at really quickly is just the ones in the passage we read when he says these three simple words, I have come. Do not think that I have come, he says. And then in the next phrase, he says, I have not come to abolish them. I have come. In a way, stop and think about that. Who, who talks like that? You know, the normal thing to say there would be, you know, I was born to do this, or I was, I've been, all my training has led towards this, or my game plan with you is this, or my mission statement, or my vision for you is this. Not, I have come. It's like, what are you, from outer space or something, Jesus? What, you know, that's kind of weird. That's a weird way to talk. 
So that just should stand out to you that, why is he talking that way? That's different. That's odd. And then he says something outrageous on a whole other level. He says, I've come to fulfill them when he's talking about the law. He's, he's come to fulfill all of the law. Again, what, what, what's going on? But both of these things, really, they lead you to ask a question that's very important. And I believe there are these little hints amidst the Sermon on the Mount to make, as you bump up against it and maybe in your mind you say, oh, yeah, Jesus sounds really intense. Um, oh, but wait, something doesn't sound... Uh. And as you eventually, hopefully, reach the point of spiritual desperation that you would say, wait, what was that stuff about him coming? What was that stuff about him fulfilling? Because these are things that a standard teacher or guru doesn't say. And it leads you to say, well, he's not the normal teacher guru. Then who is he? And that's the right question to ask. Who is he? Who is Jesus? And he's embed- by doing this, he's embedding hope right here amidst his impossible demand for righteousness. That despite the dramatic shortfall that you should find between yourself and the law, and that the, the law would be a mirror to show you your dramatic shortfall, Jesus has come. He is the kind of being who, he's, who is he? He's the kind of being who can talk about, I have come. Because he had, an, he had an existence and he had a consciousness before he arrived. And the coming was very intentional. The coming was very important. And it's important for you to see that despite all the ways that you'll find that you fall short, God thought that you were worth saving anyway. Bless you. And so Jesus is basically saying, when he says, I have come to fulfill, and that everything, another clue in there, everything is accomplished. Well, who's going to accomplish everything? These are clues to show you that Jesus is the one who is going to accomplish every dot and tittle of the law. Jesus is the one who's going to you know, dot all the I's and cross all the T's, even in the scariest part of the law. In a sense, and you know this and you dive into this, the more you read scripture is that basically kind of the way things work in the realm of the law is we, we kind of deserve, because of our shortfall, to be banished as a result. And even that Jesus will accomplish. Even that Jesus will fulfill. He'll be banished in our place. And so it is the case that with God and with the gospel, if you can have your wake-up call, if you can hang in there with something like the Sermon on the Mount and realize your own desperation at achieving these things, then you can get to the transformative moment where you see that God's love and commitment for you is bigger, bigger than your shortfall in trying to obey Him. you ever been in a relationship where um, the love and the forgiveness of the person, their commitment to you was bigger than the big mistake that you made, the violation of the relationship that you committed. What a transformative. That transforms you. And what I'm not able to get to in this talk today, but I will only hint at, is that if you want, want to know whether I think, you know, we just say forget it and we can't do any of this stuff anyway so we don't have to try because it's all grace. Oh, no, 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 no. Once you've had that transformative moment, 
Actually, what the gospel, what the Bible will teach you is that if you've been met with God's love, it actually transforms your whole heart towards God, so much so that you naturally are now a person who wants to pursue obedience. And it's free of all that horrible burden. There's a freedom to it. You want that? You need to get, you need to get through that process. You can't get there quick like that. You need to kind of go through this. The desperation, then the aha moment, then the transformation. Let's pray. Our God of grace, as we imagine that you're doing this in our lives and as we pray for it and hope for it, um, we all need different things. And for some people today, um, you know, maybe some people today, even though they're in a church service, they're not in a place where this is the part of the Bible that they need, a big, huge sermon on, on how high of the law's standards are. You know, if, if, if some folks are in a religious, non-religious point today, they need a story like the prodigal son. They need a story like Zacchaeus. They need a story like the woman at the well or the two thieves on the cross. But the truth is, if we're sitting here in church, the, the vast majority of us, most of the time, if we're sitting here on a Sunday morning in Sacramento, California in 2019, we've got a little bit of the elder brother syndrome, at least a little bit. We have, we have attempted the duty path, and I pray that you would give us a humbling and that you would walk us towards the transformative grace and the love that is bigger than our shortfall. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.